Hello and welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am your host, Tom Richardson, and I'm delighted to say that we're joined today by Mr. Dan Swift. Dan is, uh, well, as well as being a wonderful man and one of the original RegTech Legends, he is CEO and founder of Empire Selling. That's particularly interesting to us because uh, amongst Empire Selling's customers are many of the RegTech firms um, that you'll be very familiar with. And Empire Selling helps those businesses with digital sales training and transformation. And if you ask me, that's never been more important than it is right now. Uh, And Dan has very kindly offered to come on the show to share his story, but also um, maybe share one or two tips and tricks that we can all use uh, immediately to make our digital selling more effective. So very grateful to him for that. So without further ado, let's cut straight to Dan. He can tell us about how his journey into RegTech began. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you you having me on. I think my journey started in the RegTech space with a company that some of your listeners might be familiar with, Complinet. Uh-huh. And I, yeah, you know, <laughs> I know you know Complinet. Um, so yeah, I joined Complinet back in 2000 and it was my first sales job. And I joined, I was actually the first salesperson um, at Complinet as well in the UK. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I was, I was given, I remember it vividly, I was given an insurance um, directory of brokers and agencies and intermediaries and a whole load of telephone numbers and addresses and a telephone um, and told, go sell. So that, awesome. that was training. <laughs> so just to, to, to hone in on that bit. So how many people were in the company at Complinet at that time? Wow, when I joined, probably less than 20. Uh, there was the, the key executive leadership team, uh, the Chris Pillings, the Alex Biles um, of this world. And then uh, myself as the sales person, I had a boss back then, Spencer Black, and, um, and then some key technical people who were obviously building the, the platform out. And then the, the, the really critical people, which were the content folks, right? the editorial team. And there was maybe three editors at the time. Wow. So yeah, it was very early stage. We were actually in uh, in a small school, um, a converted old school, but um, we literally had two rooms. And the funny part about it is, remember it now, it's all coming back to me. Um, We had cables running out of one of the windows from one of the buildings (laughs) to the other building. We had space, a typical startup. And uh, and that's how we got power from one place to the other. Fantastic. (laughs) Bootstrapping. So yeah, um, a little bit different from the uh, opulence of Vintners, where I know right. you've yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember moving into there and we'd, we'd been via um, uh, the Putney office, which when we, when we moved to the Putney office, we all thought we'd made it. And then uh, when we moved into the, the heart of you know, London, that was, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful office there, right? So Yeah. Fantastic. Sorry, I, um, I, I took us off track there. So you, you, you joined Complinet as one of the first people in the, mm-hmm. or salespeople in the business. Yep. I got, um, I got an early promotion in my career because we were moving so, so quickly as a business. Um, so I was running a sales team, the sales team um, in the UK. And we, I had, it was crazy when I look back, actually. So I was 24, 25 at this point, and, and I had about 20 salespeople reporting either directly or almost directly to me. 
and I had no sales leadership experience. <laughs> and I look back at some of the things I did and said and what I thought was me being strategic and I just cringe, you know, um, <laughs> but so many lessons when I look back, but, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that was very early on. Um, and then fast track component component was acquired by Thomson Reuters, right? The, uh, the, the governance risk and compliance group in 20, I think it was 2010 or 2011. And we went from being a very small company still. I mean, we were maybe 200 people around yeah. the world. Um, and I'd moved to New York at this point. I was running um, as a salesperson um, out of the New York office. And um, yeah, we were acquired. I went there in 2006, we acquired 2010 by Thompson. And we went from being a 200 person company to part of a, an 88,000 person company, I think it was, which wow. was just talk about cultural change. That was yeah. crazy. Out of interest, how did you end up being the guy running the New York office for, for Compliment? I wish I was running the New York office for Compliment. I went over there as a sales guy. Ah, um, right. So actually, it's a strange thing because I took up that leadership role on so early, knowing nothing about leadership. Um, and then, you know, shifts happen in, in companies as they're going through these crazy growth spells. And Compliment literally said to me, we've got some pretty big customers now. Can you basically be the global account? director or manager or whatever they called it at the time um, for these huge organizations and can you do it from New York so myself and two friends um, went over there you probably think you know them Alex Wood and Rob yeah. Fulcher and, uh, and the three of us went over to um, really push the business into North America um, so yeah it was uh, it was it was fun as a 30 year old at the time then um, in uh, in New York and, and, and looking after some of the largest organizations that we had on our books, the likes of uh, Morgan Stanley at the time, thinking back to my book of business, Bank of New York Mellon. I mean, we had some fantastic customers yeah. all relying on our, on our regulatory intelligence. What, I mean, I assume, that sounds fantastic. So by, mm. you, did you already know Alex and Rob at that point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, we basically grew up in business together. We, all, we were all young sales guys at Complinet in London, <laughs> all selling. And I was managing them. They were managing me. I mean, roles and responsibilities were just, you know, turned upside down for years because it was uh, so fast moving, you know? Yeah. It was, it was crazy. So you and your mates basically got sent to New York, yeah. a business that uh, that was going gangbusters to yeah. help sell over. I, I imagine totally. a few stories. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we won't we won't go there though on this <laughs> another time. Yeah. Um, very good. So 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 and they, they got acquired by by Thomson Reuters. Um, where do we go from there? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting because I remember on, on a personal note, I remember being excited about being acquired um because of all talk about how um it was going to be such incredible opportunity for people like um alex rob and myself but others as well there's loads of really successful people at confident and um so i was excited about it but at the same time when it actually happened i was less excited about it just personally because in a smaller companies and i'm sure this will um, resonate with a lot of listeners you you get the opportunity to um, see the impact of your actions yeah. on the actual company itself. Whereas you move to a company or any company, it does Thomson Reuters or anyone, and a company of that size, it's really hard to see the impact of what you're doing um, on the actual company itself. So for me, I never really felt at home there. Uh, I, I, I was there for about 18 months, um, but I, as soon as I got there, I kind of started thinking this is, I've got to think about what my next, my next play is. Yeah. Um, and so, and you were in New York when that was happening. Yeah. Presumably, 
it crosses your mind do you come back to the uk or do you stay out there uh not really <laughs> and oh, if my, really? Mother, my mother ever listens to this sorry mum. um <laughs> but no, no not so much it was for me I, I was sold on particularly on new york but i was sold on the us from from a very early point in my time here um so i'd been there four years at this point um i'd actually already applied for my green card i met my now wife um at that point so i i, I knew i wasn't going anywhere and um for me it was there's something exciting about, particularly about New York, but about the US um, for people like myself, because for entrepreneurs, there's a lot of um, a lot of support for people who really just want to give it a go. And I'm not saying there isn't anywhere else in the world, but particularly in New York, I think it's a really exciting place to to try mm. things. Um, but yeah, yeah. When you, when you say support for entrepreneurs, do you mean culturally, as in people yeah. generally just ad- admire it, or are, are there actual practical elements to do with rules? Uh, and def- yeah, I, um, a bit of everything. So there's definitely um, a lot of ways in which um, small businesses can get supporting for support from the government and loans and that kind of stuff to get going. We didn't go down that route, but I know a lot of people who did. Everything we've done has been bootstrapped. Um, in terms of uh, support networks groups um online offline um that you can get become part of as a as an entrepreneur and i'm sure those exist around the world too um, but really active particularly in new york um and then culturally for sure um i've had conversations about or had conversations about what i wanted to do with empire and what i wanted to launch and um and people Maybe it's just my circle of friends and my circle of acquaintances, but we're incredibly supportive here. Whereas elsewhere in the world, a lot of people question, why would you possibly? And at this point, again, remember, I was I went from Thompson to LinkedIn to Sprinkler and then went to go and launch Empires. The thing, the other, the other things we could talk about. Um, but people were saying, well, why would you leave the divisional vice president role? And you've spent 20 years in your career to get there, to then walk away from that, which was a well-paid gig, lots of responsibility, uh, it's on paper. Why would you walk away from that? And even when I tried to explain it to a lot of people, didn't you know? A lot of people couldn't wrap their head around why why you'd want to do that. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, and, and yeah. interesting that there was a split in terms of that that kind of response um, between people in the US and and people elsewhere. I presume the UK. Yeah, very much so. And again, maybe it's just my circle of friends, my acquaintances, people I know. This I know some incredibly successful entrepreneurs in the UK, um, and I'm sure there's all that support network and systems and, and, and things. I think that that, that line in, uh, about New York, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Like that, that just really resonated with me. And um, and I, I knew after Thompson Reuters, I knew that I needed to because I, I knew my end game was to go and train salespeople. Uh, and the thing that drives me has never changed throughout my career. It's just I want everyone around me to be as productive and successful as possible, um, just so they can have, provide for themselves and their loved ones. Right? That's always been what's driven me. D- don't ask me. Well, actually, I do know why. After years and years of counselling, we can go there later if you want. Uh, <laughs> but um, um, but it's it for me. It's I, that was my end game. So when I'm at Thomson Reuters, I went to LinkedIn. When I was at LinkedIn, I went to Sprinkler, and I was always looking for ways in which I could just learn as much as I could about social media and digital, and then how I could apply it to sales and marketing, and so then and then how I could package it up to then go train salespeople. Yeah. So I had the luxury of like from 2010 through to 2018 to really think about this and build it and plan for this. 
Um, so when I did do it, it wasn't as scary as some people might think, because um, I'd been planning this for a while. You, you, you talk about planning that for a while, and obviously the companies that you worked at, they, they would on the face of it seem so relevant to what you eventually did. Mm -hmm. um, am I right in thinking you went from Thomson Reuters to LinkedIn, direct to LinkedIn? Yep. Correct, yep. To what extent was that planning for what you're doing now? Or was it serendipity? I, 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 yeah, the latter. I don't think um, at the time, I definitely didn't think that by going to LinkedIn, that was going to be the springboard. I knew I wanted to do something to train um, people, but I wasn't totally sure at that time what that was going to be. And, um, and talk about the network effect and the power of LinkedIn. Someone I used to play rugby with in the UK, who was on LinkedIn, um, him and I you know, kept in touch using the platform. He then moved to the US. He actually then got a job at LinkedIn. And then when he um, heard about a role internally, he obviously knew me in that point and, and recommended me internally and away we went. I got hired at LinkedIn um, oh, wow. a week later. So yeah, it's, uh, so I, I spent two and a half years at LinkedIn and it was a really cool gig because I was brought in to help launch the social selling business for LinkedIn. And I don't, didn't really know at the time exactly what that would allow me to then go do. Yeah. But it was... It, it was essentially, for those of you who might know it, the LinkedIn Sales Navigator product, it was helped launch that product, evangelize social selling, and get to meet loads of, social, uh, loads of sales leaders and marketing leaders around the world. So what better yeah. place to go and build your network out and learn all of this stuff to then ultimately go and do what I do now? Uh, I feel like we, we need to give a shout out to the guy from, from LinkedIn, the old rugby pal who introduced you to LinkedIn. Mr. John Williams. Absolutely. John Williams. Thank you, sir. <laughs> um, so so you, you, you joined LinkedIn and clearly it's giving you an almost unique uh, exposure to social selling. Mm. And I mean, in fact, LinkedIn has had, had such an impact. It's not It's not even exposure to social selling they kind of created it didn't they yeah. to some extent they they created the market very much so. because so much of it happens over linkedin yeah i mean and when i joined i think we had something like 200 million members on linkedin there's now 700 million members on wow. linkedin plus so so many business professionals are on there uh, but then it becomes Again, fast forward into a little bit of what we do. Um, LinkedIn is one of those channels that you just have to master as a B2B sales professional. And, and when I say master, knowing exactly what to do and when and how to do it to achieve that end result, which might be to get meetings with C-level executives. Um, but it was interesting when I was at LinkedIn as well, leveraging all the CompuNet and RegTech experience that I had, um, I was asked to run financial services globally within this group so I, was, I had a team of people who were essentially selling into banks, financial, insurance, uh, organi uh, financial services organizations, and getting their insurance companies and getting their sellers, right, who might be anything from financial advisors, insurance agents, um, commercial bankers, business bankers, and getting them to um, use LinkedIn to build their businesses out. And when you try and get them using platforms like LinkedIn, the compliance and regulatory departments obviously then swoop in and go, whoa, hang on. Yeah. So you're going to be getting our salespeople using social channels. We're going to have to put a little bit of a um, protection around that and some frameworks. And, you know, we obviously have to um, maintain records of what communications have been sent through these channels. 
So the RegTech experience became so important because I was explaining to LinkedIn what we then had to do in terms of building partner ecosystems with compliance partners to wrap around LinkedIn. So when we sold it to a bank, they could use it safely. It was just everything was all coming together, you know. Well, it, it seems so normal to um, to exist so fully on LinkedIn now that it's it's easy to forget that it wasn't that long ago that people were still very nervous about mm. to what extent you can share information on LinkedIn. Of course, that's still important, but yeah. um, but I think there was a, a lot more nervousness um, once upon a time, and and even what's normal hadn't been, um, you know, we hadn't figured it out yet. Mm-hmm. I remember companies trying to claim an individual's LinkedIn profile yeah. because they develop their networks and connections during mm-hmm. their tenure at that organization. I mean, that mm-hmm. seems absurd now. Right. Well, there's so much technology that has, has grown up. There's a whole technology ecosystem of companies that grew up in the last six to eight years, um, were born and grew up, and, um, and their, their sole existence is to allow financial services and insurance companies to let their people use these social channels to pull the data that the you know sec finra whatever the regulatory bodies are around the world um and make sure that that data is archived and um and anything that needs to be routed through compliance before it could be posted onto linkedin that happens so a whole ecosystem grew up around ultimately what I was doing at LinkedIn, which is just, when you say it out loud, is wild to think through. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like that was a very positive experience for you at LinkedIn. Um, What made you move? So Sprinkler, because of the end result, the end result, I wanted to go train salespeople. And I knew that mastering LinkedIn wasn't enough, right? So as a B2B salesperson, there's so many other channels that you need to know about. There's only so many other techniques. And everything I was doing at LinkedIn was LinkedIn and salespeople. Now, for those of you who are listening who don't know Sprinkler, Sprinkler is one of the fastest growing social media management technology companies in the world. And they exist because they're helping massive brands, uh, huge brands like Verizon here in the US, um, uh, Nike, all huge companies manage their social presence um, on a corporate basis. So marketing functions are using that technology to listen to what people like you and I might be saying on social about Nike or Verizon or Comcast or whoever it is, um, and then continue to do business based on what their customers are doing and saying. So um, I have some great friends who are at Sprinkler and they're tapping on the shoulder saying, you know, you might want to come and look at our organization. So I actually went there for a year thinking it was going to be a year to just be a sponge and learn as much as I possibly could to go, go and then launch um, Empire. And I got there and loved it. Uh, it was a really cool company, very lucrative. I was given a lot of responsibility. I was learning. As long as I'm learning, that's to me all that really matters. And three years flew by. And, um, and two and a half years into my three-year tenure, I asked my wife, okay, it's nearly three years now. Is any chance you'd be okay with it if I maybe stop doing this <laughs> and then go out and just leave it all behind and go and do my own thing. And she, her and I had chatted about it for years and she was like, yeah, this is your time. You've got to go do it. So in the That's summer of, um, of 2017, I got permission from my wife and then uh, gave my notice in, hung out there until the end of the year and then launched Empire January 1, 2018. And so uh, at that point you had been, I think you said selling for 
best part of 20 years um yep. various organizations i mean the, the list of companies that you've worked at kind of speaks for themselves in terms of how successful they've been i would imagine it's been quite a lucrative uh career at those organizations what's going through your head uh and and what if any you know plan b's do you make mm -hmm. in your mind when you're you're quitting that and, and yeah. starting something out from scratch um it's interesting a lot of people have always said well, you must have been terrified um you're walking away from you know guaranteed income and sure we all have to work hard in sales and sales leadership positions but you're still guaranteed a certain amount of money every year and for me fortunately when i joined sprinkler um, I said in the interview process to my boss, Eric Martarella, um, I said, I do have a side hustle. I am doing evening classes and weekend classes, and I am teaching um, members of the public because I was, I'd rent out a space in a hotel as a side hustle and people, I'd do things on Eventbrite and people would come and to these sessions and learn. Mm -hmm. And I was testing curriculum. So I had a three-year run of testing curriculum while gainfully employed at Sprinkler. And, and it, it allowed me to in my mind, you know, proved to myself that there was a, a, there was a business there because of the appetite of all these individual sellers who were paying me a hundred bucks to come to, uh, you know, an evening class or something. Um, so I knew there was appetite and I was testing. So when it actually came to the, um, making the actual step, it wasn't too scary or daunting. I was, I was excited. I was just ready to go. I just, that was my time, you know? Yeah. That's fantastic. So I had no idea that actually, you know, you, the lead into Empire had been trialing, you know, almost like a, a comedian going to, yeah. know, that's the wrong kind of example, but you know, a comedian yeah. trial, yeah. they go to sort of free events, don't they? trialing material yeah. before you go to the main event. And it was fun as well, because I was doing the things I described, the evening classes, the weekend, I had a couple of um, very senior executives who I was doing coaching with, and I was learning all the way through that. But at Sprinkler as well, um, Eric Manarello, my boss back then, said well if you if you join us and you're going to continue to do that my only ask of you is that anything you learn you teach us internally so uh, which i was no worries because that yeah, gives me the opportunity perfect. to build an enterprise um, training program test it out on real enterprise salespeople, and see what works what doesn't um, when you roll things out what you need um, and uh, so we roll that out in the east uh, business that i was responsible for at sprinkler and a couple of things happened. LinkedIn saw the success we were having, so they did a case, a, a case study on the um, on the sprinkler business that I was running. Wow. Um, we got a load of ROI, um, and our, our East Coast business. Oh my goodness, we we just crushed the rest of the organization, all down to everything that I was teaching. So again, you get these extra validation points as a as a, a, a wannabe entrepreneur, and um, and then I also tested um, what what needed to happen with um, executives what their role would be and should be um, and when it and when they didn't get involved what the impact was on on programs like this um, what cross-functional partners you needed and, and learned very quickly that marketing is critical sales enablement sales operations to measure all of this um, so again i was learning 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 to a point where you know when i actually took this step i i was ready to go and i don't think a lot of people have that luxury a lot of people you know do at some point just have to stop one job and start yeah. a career in, in entrepreneurship. And, you know, I feel very fortunate. And had you already lined up your first customers? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, but a lot of my early customers are, and they're dear friends of mine, but they're either former bosses, um, former peers, people who had worked for me, who were then in sales leadership positions. 
So the early customers for Empire, um, it was really low hanging fruit. It was a, a combination of people who had seen me at LinkedIn or seen me at Sprinkler, had seen the success of the program, now had their own leadership goals at other companies and wanted me to come and help them. And then honestly, I think a couple of people had thrown me a few bones here and there just to say, you know, come on in and you know, we'll help you out. But, it, but the first year of Empire was a real mixture of, of, of one-off gigs, of sales kickoffs, of a couple of seminars here and there, a few online things. Like we were just testing, testing. I don't say we yeah. as me, testing, testing, testing um, until we realized that actually what this business needed to be was 12 month annually renewable programs um, highly customized for the company that would buy them, um, which was great for, for me and the family because then it's predictable revenue that was coming into the firm because these contracts could be renewed. And we've seen that after the first year, most companies renew with us and actually expand significantly because they've seen the ROI, they've seen the benefit, they've seen the transformational change that sellers have, and then they want everyone to go yeah. through. So, um, yeah, it's been a massively steep learning curve, ridiculously exciting, but a lot of work as well. A lot yeah, I get Well, I, I, the reason why I reached out to you to do this interview is that it, it seemed to, out of nowhere, I started seeing Dan Swift and Empire selling everywhere. You know, mm -hmm. people who I know from the industry and whose opinions I really value were singing your praises. So, oh. so clearly that, you know, initial period of time was very um was very successful <laughs> oh it's so nice to hear yeah it's um but again, coming back to linkedin i think that's the power of the platform because um some of the things that we teach this could be helpful to people listening today um three big things that i did um which helped me launch the business the first one is if anyone looks at my linkedin profile it's not your typical profile like a resume or a cv um where I'm writing in a way to appeal to rec recruiters is actually a, a profile and a presence that um, exists for my target market. My target market are chief revenue officers and chief marketing officers. So anyone who looks at it will immediately learn about me as a human being, um, but also learn about uh, Empire and, and the impact that we could have on that organization that's looking at us. So it's very educational. So. So I did that when I launched Empire. The second thing, I, for years, I've been connecting on LinkedIn with every single person that I have any form of business or personal interaction with, and I'm connecting with them because it's amazing who knows who. And then the final thing I would say is content strategy. So, you know, you say yourself that I was showing up on LinkedIn and you were seeing me all over the place. Um, we teach a very simple rule, right, which is a 50-25-25 rule. So 50% of what we share at Empire is about Empire because we're trying to educate the world on what we do. But 25% is about the industries that we care about. So sales and marketing, sales enablement, sales ops, any third-party content that we see from reputable sources, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, whatever it might be, we're sharing that kind of content to make our networks more productive and successful. And then the last 25% is things that we are personally and professionally passionate about. So for me, it's elevating women in business. It's um, helping military vets transition out of the military into civilian life. It's compassionate leadership. So when you, as a, as a, as a person on LinkedIn, start taking that blended approach and sharing content through tools that automate it for you, uh, but you're showing up every single day on LinkedIn with what we think is, or hope is, is helpful content, um, 
that's when the power of LinkedIn kicks in because all you need is someone to like or comment on it and it goes into their networks and we didn't spend, spend any money. This is all bootstrapped. Didn't spend any money on marketing until I hired my first marketing person 18 months into the business. And, um, and in the first year of, uh, of the business, we were, I mean, we were really, really successful. Dan, I was hoping to return to something you alluded to earlier. Um, you mentioned that there was something that kind of compelled you to want to help and educate people. Um, can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think it's it's deeper than wanting to educate people. I think that's the end result of, of what I learned about myself. So, um, so without going too deep, but let's go pretty deep. Um, I spent 10 years in therapy and 10 years learning about um, who I am. And there's all sorts of reasons for going into therapy, but I wanted to um, um, fix a few things that I knew were like fundamentally wrong with the way I was looking at the world. And after 10 years, I realized that um, the thing that was driving me the most was at an early age as a, like a 12 year old, my dad actually left home. And, um, and we went from having a very stable life and what was a, a lot of money, well, at least felt like a lot of money, big house to the polar opposite of that. And when you go from like, we had to move into a tiny little house in a different neighborhood. And when you go from like that level of safety as a kid, to something completely different, um, you you feel um, that money becomes a very important thing for you. And I realized early on that um, if I can if I can have a level of comfort with money um, and and allow it to um, facilitate the kind of life that I want, and then when I was able to do that through sales and, and being successful at sales, it removed any fear, uncertainty, doubt, anxiety about. Um, you know, you're feeling safe in the world. Yeah. Um, so then as a, as a sales leader, I was able to impact the lives of six or seven people on my team and make them really successful. So they would never have to even go through anything like what I went through. Um, and then as you move up the food chain, maybe you've got responsibility for 30 people, but you can't quite impact them in the same way because you're a second line manager at that point. So you're relying on two or three of your sales managers yeah. to impact them. So as you get further and further up the food chain in your career, I'm having a, a less of an opportunity to impact the lives in the way that I knew I could. But as a sales trainer, I knew that I've gone from impacting the lives of six or seven people to we train more than 10,000 people in nearly three years. And wow. I think about the impact that I've had through what we've done on the lives of all of those sales leaders, all of those sellers for themselves, but also their families or, or their you know, future families. And that's what drives me. So it's a weird thing to kind of get from there, but, but going into that therapy and that counseling and being able to figure out what was the, the, the thing that was broken and then fixing that. And then not only fixing it for myself, but then able to like just share everything I've got with the world. That's, that's what fuels me. I just, maybe I'm wired in a different way to some folks, but um, being able to identify that and then just jump on that and then build a business around that um, I think people feel that that passion when they're being trained and, and, and feel part of what we're doing. It's a bit of a bit of a movement, you know. Yeah, that's um, that's pretty powerful, right? If someone believes um, in the concept of what they're doing uh, in the way that you've just described, there, people can't help but pick up on that. Yeah, uh, without a doubt. Um, a mission, not a business. Yeah. 
And it does feel like that as well. And people have also said to me, like, what's it going to be? And what's your exit strategy? And how big yeah. are you going to make this? And how many people are you going to have? Or do you have? And how many are you going to have? And, and I always say to them, which I think surprises folks, is, is that's, that's not what this is all about. Um, right now, we're early on. We're just proving the model to ourselves. And we're, um, we're building out a predictable program. Sure, we will scale. But this has all been bootstrapped. I'm not looking for investment. I don't want or need investment, fortunately. And, and we're building something that it's, it's about, is a level of purity about it, so we know it works. As soon as you start scaling anything, that's when things can start breaking and, and the quality, particularly for services businesses, yeah. quality <clears throat> of what you're delivering um, might not always be as good. So I wanna get this right before we, we even think about scaling something and unfortunately the the financial side is is is, is good um but um but it's not about that again it's it's about what we're doing with the training and yeah. the impact it's having uh, and the, the fact that it's been pretty lucrative has been a you know bonus now you you mentioned something there that i have to pick up on because you're talking mm -hmm. about scaling the business and the challenges of, of doing that and keeping that purity there and obviously i run uh, barker white and we help businesses scale by finding good people mm -hmm. um i'd be fascinated to know what what is it you're looking for when you're yeah. when you're employing people in that business that means so much to you yeah the, the first two hires i made um uh, rebecca jacardo um who was very senior in marketing at sprinkler and she was watching the way that I engage with teams and people and just wanted to be a part of that. So she helped me with a few things when I had my side hustle. And, um, and as soon as I launched this, her and I got together and, um, very early on and she was like, so uh, should we maybe do something together here? <laughs> um, so she left a, a fantastic role there to come and launch this with me. And then um, our head of customer development, Jordan Shabika, he was at Sprinkler as well, uh, and he was running all the sales dev and then moved into an account executive um, role. And, um, and he's now over at, um, at Empire as well. So these are people who have left, which is a big responsibility for me, but have left incredibly good careers to come and join a very small organization um, to go build something. And then fortunately, because of the career and everything I've described, I've met so many people and now trained so many people and, and, and so many leaders in my network. When we're ready to go to that next phase, um, it will be a question of picking off the, the cream of the people that I've worked with. And, and, and also I think a lot of people by that point, it won't feel as scary to them to come and join Empire Selling, maybe that it might've been in the past yeah. because it's now proven. And we're working with huge companies around the world, you know, and. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's just a question of hiring the right people at the right yes. time and doing it for the right reasons. So in some ways, you've got the ideal scenario where you've you've got this um, ace of spades group of people that you've uh, that you've been I don't want to say grooming, but but had your eye on for a long time. Um, what is it about them that makes those the individuals that you're likely to reach out to in the future uh, to join yeah. this this business? great question so I've been thinking about this a lot recently and I look back to when I was either managing them or um, a cross-functional partner of theirs and, and just looking at their the way that they do business um, but also the way that they treat others and it's been fascinating because some people I've worked with have been some of the best salespeople on paper um, because they've you know crushed numbers etc but haven't been the best human beings um, in terms of how they've um, worked with other people. 
And for me, our hashtag is bringing human back. Our hashtag is bringing human back into sales and how salespeople engage with the market and how they uh, try and prospect and how they build relationships. But it's also how, um, how you're human with other human beings internally at the business. So, um, so those people wouldn't cut it, right? Those, those top performing salespeople who are just not good human beings wouldn't, wouldn't come to Empire. So I'm looking for the, t the, the best people who are just um, wired the right way. Um, ride the right, right way where um, I've worked with some incredible salespeople who have walked away from um, doing deals that would have been the wrong deal for both the customer and for um, uh, the organization that they were working for because it would have created all sorts of headaches behind the scenes in terms of, I mean, ultimately it's all about mis-selling tech um, to people to make commission. Um, so again, on paper, some people you'd think Dan should go and hire those people who were top performers. No way. Because again, what we're building is something that is, is pure and something that is, is, is being done for all the right reasons. So when, when we actually start really expanding this out, we're going to be looking for people who do what I do now. So it's people who will be training and will be supporting massive organizations like SAP is, is a, one of our customers. So, um, ethically wired the right way, fantastic at what they do and doing it for the right reasons and knowing social and digital well. Now I know it well, Jordan Shabika on my team here knows it better than me. Um, so you're always hiring people who are better than you, <clears throat> excuse me, so you can learn from them. Right. And there's so many, so many talented people now who, cause social and digital, when it comes to business, it's not a new thing. Um, it's been around for a long time and a lot of people have been using it. Sometimes they just need a bit of a, a framework around it, which is what we do. Um, so there's a lot of really talented people out there that I would, I would love to bring on board. Fantastic. Right now, it would seem that digital selling was already coming of age. It had already come mm. of age. It was already a thing, but never, no one could have anticipated the extent to which that would be accelerated by what's going on in the world at the moment with, uh, yeah. with COVID-19. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing there in, in terms of any trends? And mm -hmm. I know that you're probably not going to want to give away the, the secret source, but are there any um, useful nuggets of information that you could share with our listeners um, that's going to help them as they adjust to, um, to selling more online? Yeah, no, definitely. So um, I think we're, we're very well positioned as a business because what we've been evangelizing for the last nearly three years since we've been running Empire um, is engaging um, on the channels and in thoughtful and in human ways with buyers. And you think of, actually, I might be someone's target buyer and I'm pretty typical of a lot of people. I'm at home, I'm working from home like most of the world. Um, I've got a young family, my wife works full time. I've got a young family, we're homeschooling. Um, so there's a lot going on. So to try and get my attention as a potential buyer, is going to be a lot harder now than it was maybe previously when I was going into an office and you could get hold of me more easily. Now I've got two kids hanging off me, daddy, 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 you know, and it's, 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 it's just harder for sellers. So, um, so I think we're very well positioned as a business to, to do that. What have I seen um, in the early stages of COVID? I mean, New York was hit as the world knows really, really hard. Um, and, um, 
and I think a lot of the companies that we were talking to, not just in New York, all over the world, um, decisions were paused, absolutely, um, like any other company, just to see what was happening and, and where this was all, all going. And then in the last, um, I would say, 10 weeks after um, middle of March, um, companies started coming back to us and saying, not only do we not want to pause, we want to get going, and we want to get going quickly and in a, in a larger scale, because we've got all of these people now sat at home who traditionally would be out in the market, walking the you know the halls of big organizations, um, on planes every day of the week, and they're now sat at home and literally don't know what to do. So you know, even to, to calls like this and on on a Zoom call or, or um, you know using LinkedIn to prospect or recording videos for people, like this is such an alien concept for so many people. And even if it is something they've been doing for a while, doing it well to a level where a C-level executive would um, want to respond is a skill in itself. So we're really well positioned as, as a business, but um, uh, yeah, for 10 weeks in the early stages of the pandemic, like I think any other company, it was uh, like, oh gosh, <laughs> where's this going? Yeah. Well, it's completely unknown territory, wasn't it? For those, for those people out here listening, you're, you're the expert on all things di digital selling. What should we be thinking about? Mm. So I, I think less about the strategies and the tactics that sellers should do first. We'll get to that in a sec. I think more about buyer behavior. And I think more about what the expectations of buyers now are. And there's so much research and so much data out there. So listeners in the sales position should go and read up on this because then you need to pivot and, and align what you're doing day to day to the wants and needs of your buyers. Uh, and it depends at what level you're trying to sell into. Um, so in terms of if you're trying to get um, meetings with the C-level and the executives, very different to if you're trying to get down um, uh, meetings with small you know, business owners at small companies. Um, but I think one thing remains the same, is buyers are, they're becoming more and more digitally savvy and they're becoming more and more um, uh, knowledgeable about the the market and products and services and solutions and the companies and the vendors that are out there so you should know as much it's a crazy thing to say but you should know absolutely everything there is to know about your own company because you never want to be in a situation where a buyer knows more than you right so as a as a, a junior sales development rep who might be listening right now um, who's nervous about reaching out to an executive you can become a domain expert by learning everything there is about the customers that are bought from you, reading all the customer stories, the data points, why they bought, talk to the reps that sold the deals, um, and just become an absolute expert in this because that's where your credibility piece comes when you're talking as a 22 or 23 year old SDR, talking to a 50 or 60 year old CTO, um, you might know more about your specific um, thing that you solve for than that person and that's where you can become a domain expert expert so take that and then go on to social and digital and make sure you're telling the world that so when when a buyer comes to your profile um, make sure that you don't look like uh, a 23 24 year old SDR and you can't hide the fact that you are that age but you can absolutely transition away from talking about your performance against quota to how your company helps people like that CIO or CTO achieve their goals customer stories, branding, all of that good stuff in your profile. Networking, you're chatting with and emailing with and speaking with so many people every single day. So whenever you have a brief 10 minute conversation with someone, just slip it into the conversation. Oh, by the way, let's connect on LinkedIn. Yeah, it sounds good, done. Build your network now because you'll be able to leverage it 
in the medium to longer term. And then content strategy. Um, we started this conversation, you said, you know, I kept seeing Dan Swift Empire selling all over LinkedIn. Well, I'm not doing anything particularly um, innovative other than just sticking with a strategy. And my strategy is to show up on LinkedIn every single day, but I schedule my content on a Sunday night once the kids have gone to bed. And that content is scheduled for the best times of the day for engagement on LinkedIn, but it's, I'm always there, I'm always showing up. So people begin to not only read my stuff, but actually begin to start relying on, on the content in their feed. So much so I stopped a couple of weeks ago and I got two messages from people saying, we haven't seen any content for two wow. days, are you okay? <laughs> That's amazing. Because <laughs> I, I often sit there and wonder, you know, to what extent are people paying attention to, yeah. um, to, to you know, the regularity with which you post these things? Mm -hmm maybe more than uh, more than I realized or, or certainly your content <laughs> I think and, and again it's just because I'm not in it for the, the vanity metrics and the likes and all that sort of stuff um, I'm in it for I know that people are voyeuristic and I know that people um, might read an article but don't even think to like it or whatever and I do it because I want them to be productive and successful I want them to see stuff that they might not have seen ordinarily um, without me putting it out there and as a direct result of that, we're having this conversation that all of the business that we came to into the organization has come through the fact that people have heard about what we're doing through organic, non-paid sharing and content on, on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and other channels. But yeah, it's, uh, it's the power of LinkedIn, my friend. Yeah. I wanted to, there was a question that has cropped up a few times that I've been talking to senior salespeople um, over the last couple of months. Um, and uh, in the back of my mind, each time I, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to ask Dan Swift what he thinks of that because mm -hmm. he, he's probably the perfect guy to ask. What challenges or opportunities do you envisage for those engaged in enterprise sales during this um, COVID era and remote working? Yeah, for sure. So every single one of our customers are enterprise sellers. Um, they're calling into um, oftentimes large institutions and um, there are, as we all know, six to 10 people in the average B2B buying process. I think it's way more than that uh, for true enterprise selling. So, um, so we always encourage them to start with the best tool on the market for this kind of selling and it's LinkedIn Sales Navigator. And if used well, most, most enterprise sellers typically might have I mean, if you're doing genuine key or global accounts, it might be five huge organizations. A lot of account managers have 20 or 25 companies to sell into. So it's getting those companies saved in LinkedIn Sales Navigator. So they are um, getting the kind of information that they need to know exactly what's going on at those companies. And then it's finding the people that are going to be involved in that consensus purchase on LinkedIn and in Navigator and saving those people because then you can map your networks to those people and then you can see what they care about based on what they're sharing. And you can essentially get walked in the door to a lot of them through your customers or other people in the market. So we think based on the experiences that we're having that um, the current situation with COVID-19 has made it um, uh, actually quite, no, I'm not gonna say easy, things are never easy, easier to go get those conversations. Then with things like Zoom and some of the other platforms out there, we all know in enterprise sales, you have to go and identify the real um, business drivers that people have and also their personal drivers to make any form of change. So the great thing with Zoom um, and, and conversations like, um, like this, for example, is you can get that decision maker or influencer 
on a, on a conversation, on a call, look at them in the, in the, in the eye and really get some quality time with them um, to uncover all of that. And then with content um, and social and digital, once you understand what that person cares about, it's then um, keeping them engaged um, in the conversation with you and not letting them go off to something else or another project or another so if salespeople know how to use content effectively, and I'm talking about marketing assets, and what to send to different types of buying personas at the different stages of the journey that they're on with you and with your company, um, to keep those people engaged all the way throughout and into the customer journey, it's critical. So for, for what we're doing, we're teaching enterprise sellers about the power of content and marketing assets, because marketing groups are spending a lot of money on producing this, and salespeople, I was never trained on how to use marketing content until I figured it out and now I've trained people myself. So, um, so actually, I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity for um, French prize sellers to, to start um, really infusing what, these kind of skills into their day-to-day. -day. Yeah, fantastic. So, Dan, uh, I mentioned that I regularly um, see the content that you're posting out there. It was initially through contacts of mine that were, were kind of liking and commenting on it. And now, of course, I follow you and uh, I look forward to, to those updates myself. One of the things I noticed on there is that you talk a lot about compassionate leadership. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I started thinking about it a lot when I had people who were not compassionate at all as leaders. <laughs> And, um, and I found it really hard as a salesperson to want to go to bat for them every single day, uh, which is ultimately as a seller, right? You're making your sales leader successful too. And I found it really hard um, to want to do that for someone who um, wasn't ultimately treating me as a human being. Um, I felt like I was literally being treated like a number and the way that I was spoken to just didn't feel, make me feel particularly inspired to do anything um, at the company. So, um, so I started thinking a lot about it in terms of when I'm becoming a sales leader, what kind of sales leader do I want to be and, what, um, and, 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 and what's going to get people to, to um, want to really run through walls for you. And so for me, compassionate leadership is, is being a human being, is being predictable um, in terms of the kind of, you know, who, who is Dan Swift and who, which version of Dan Swift is showing up to, to work every day and in, and in life every day. And it's the same Dan Swift that is the dad, is the husband, is, you know, um, is the, the CEO of Empire. It's the same person. And it's predictability. So people know exactly what they're going to get. And that, that allows people to come to you really let their guard down because they know the kind of response they're going to get which is one of support and seeking to understand why and then help that person get through whatever it is so that so compassionate leadership is being is being um predictable to your people around you in, in the right kind of way um it's been vulnerable I shared some stuff on the podcast today that some people might be like whoa i can't believe you shared all of that well why not if it helps other people um be help you know successful so vulnerability is, is sharing as a leader is sharing mistakes that you made so other people don't make the same mistakes and uh, I think a lot of sales leaders don't want to show that vulnerable side because maybe it shows an, an element of weakness maybe in their minds um, but actually human beings respond really well when other human beings say I kind of messed this one up and this is what happened to me when I did it as a result and uh, and it shows that you're uh, again, human. Um, yeah. there's, other, there's one other thing I think is really important for them as well is or a couple of things. Um, 
I think some sales leaders, if they join a new organization and they start kind of introducing playbooks that have worked for them at previous organizations and start making changes versus first of all, getting to know your people who've, who've, you now got in your sales organization, um, what's worked, what hasn't worked, actually walk in their shoes a little bit, make a few calls, um, look what the internal processes are like. If someone's interested, how do you process an order? Like those kind of things, um, I think is critical before, do you even know if you, if your playbook's even going to work yeah. at this company? Um, and then the final one is, uh, and it's, I think probably the most important one is as a sales leader, um, it's our responsible responsibility to be there um, for our people and sales as a career as we all know um, is tough huge highs massive lows um, so learning how to um, um, support your people ultimately if you're a good sales leader you become almost like a, a bit of a counselor or a therapist or something because yes. the number of times right that salespeople have come to me and all they want to do is just let it out and just get it off their chest and and then leave my office, walk away, and then, and I know they feel better. And, and I'm just like, well, if that helps them, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, that's sometimes that's all your role is. So there's so many, there's so much to unpack on on that as a topic. But that, that, that's some of my my feelings about it. Yeah. Do you? Uh, we're talking about leadership there, um, but but you sort of touched on something about about selling itself. Is there a fundamental conflict between the type of selling that you're 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 talking about and having to deal? with the inevitable rejection um, that a salesperson ultimately faces on a regular basis. Totally. Um, there absolutely is. And, and forget digital selling. I think just selling period is, um, is, is part of it is just knowing. And I think this comes with experience is that knowing that this isn't, um, this isn't a reflection on your ability as a salesperson. If someone says no, I mean, it is, if you've done a, a poor job, right. But, um, <laughs> but if you've done the best job that you could have, done with the skill set that you have then it's not a reflection on you maybe just the buyer is not ready to buy or maybe your technology just isn't the right fit and 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 just knowing that you're not going to win every single one but my advice would be going to every interaction um to want to learn so you can be the best version of yourself and and next time um you don't go down the same route that maybe you went down previously because um, you're going to end up with the same end result. So you've got to be that sponge that I described myself as earlier, just yeah. always wanting to, 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 um, to learn. But then I think there's also the, the beauty of, of bringing it back to digital is before like LinkedIn and before this whole concept um, was even a, was an opportunity for sellers. If someone said no to you, then your only course of action really then was like, Okay, well, I'll call you back at some point. Um, whereas on LinkedIn now, if we do what we've been saying and connect with that person who says no and just say, well, okay, got it, no worries, let's connect on LinkedIn and stay close, things might change in the future. And educate them, nurture them with content, build your network out because it's amazing who knows who. It might yeah. be down the road that someone in your network actually ends up being the boss of the person who said no and that person actually does want to buy from you. So ultimately the person who said no down the road might actually end up you know, buying from you because his or her boss actually saw something you shared. So yeah. LinkedIn has made the world a lot smaller, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really good point about that sort of maintaining contact afterwards via LinkedIn um, with, with not just them, but the, um, the network around them. And what I'm increasingly seeing and when I talk to potential buyers now, um, thanks to some of the work I'm doing with this podcast, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a real appreciation also for people that recognize that 
um, you're not going to buy from them now. Um, and the reason you're not going to buy from them now is because what they're selling is not a priority for us right now in this long list of things we've got to do. Um, uh, if you kind of recognize that early and try and be helpful to them, mm -hmm. then actually you're the person that I'm going to come back to next time. Right. Um, and, and buy from you when what you're selling is a priority for me. Mm -hmm. And equally, if you, um, salespeople have long careers typically in, in sales, if, if this is an area that you, uh, uh, if RegTech, for example, is an industry that you're looking to spend a lot of time in, um, you might not be at the organization that you were at the first time you met someone, you might be somewhere else. And, and if you interact with them in the way that you've described and, um, uh, and they bought into that, there's a good chance at some point in that person's career, his mm -hmm. top priority will be what your provider, your company provides, and there's an opportunity then to do some business together. So true. Yeah, and, and in exactly the same way as you've just described us as salespeople moving around and working at different companies, guess what? So are the people yeah. that are selling too. And it might be that they can't buy because there's someone else maybe further up the food chain um, that has a fundamental issue with your company. Right, but that person, uh, and, and so as a result, can't buy from you. But that person then moves to somewhere else, and they don't have that cultural block or something going on, and they're good to go. But they, maybe they just can't tell you that because they're not, you know, that would be unethical, or they, you know. So there's, again, you just got to believe in yourself and um, and just maintain relationships. That's why LinkedIn always says relationships matter. Like it's such a clever catchphrase, right? So so spot on. Um, because you never know where people are going to go. You never know where people are going to work. You never know what roles people are going to get. So just being a good human being and keeping in touch um, is is critical um, for the medium long term in your careers. Yeah, very good. Um, one final thought, if I may, Dan. One final question. Um, actually, I've got two final questions. <laughs> okay. uh, what, what advice would you give to anyone who's um, going through a period of change at the moment, for whatever reason, but you know, there's a particularly large number of people that are going through career changes at the moment, yeah. and they're thinking about taking the leap into entrepreneurship. Say a friend came to you and, 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 and said that that's something they're considering. What, what advice would you give? Wow. So, do it for the right reason. So entrepreneurship is not easy. It, it looks sometimes externally. Um, you th people might look at it and go, well, you get to be your own boss. Uh, you're not, you know, don't have to answer to anyone else, uh, all that kind of stuff. But you still also have to pay the bills yeah. and you still also have to provide for your family, et cetera. So, um, so it's making sure that you, whatever idea you have is something that you, just to be honest, you can just make money from quickly. Um, if that is the situation, if you have the luxury of, um, of having some padding and not having to make an immediate um, income from the business, then that's fantastic. So there's that. Um, the other thing I would say is if you can pick something that you are passionate about, because it's, you, you, all you do is think about it. Uh, you think about it all the time. So uh, it's got to be something that you care so much about that it doesn't feel like that's a problem. Right. So um, I'm reading about what I do. I'm reading about the industry. Like I'm always thinking about it. So um, it's, if it's not something you're passionate about very quickly, it can become yeah. really awful. tough. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and then I think the only other thing is, um, is don't think about it as something that you could just do for a little bit and then go back into what you're doing. 
it might be okay to not, not go down the entrepreneurship route. And if you're in that position of change right now, use it as an opportunity to pause. I, I, I had this exact conversation with someone last week and said, what would your advice be? I said, pause, write down on a piece of paper all the things that you loved about the role that you were in about the company you're in, the customers that you're servicing, um, all, of the, all of that good stuff. And then equally write down all the stuff that you just hated about your role, down to like the culture, the people, the bosses, the, the customers, like whatever it might be. And then, and then think about what your next ideal play would be. Like what kind of company you want to go to, what industry is it in? Do you even know the names of the company? Maybe you've got a short list of companies. And then when, when you know all of that, if you can use LinkedIn and build this in, I would be looking to see if there's anyone that you know that works at these, this dream list of companies. Um, and then start leveraging your network to make sure that when you go to your next company, your next play, there's no surprises. You've got time now if you're you know, furloughed or you're currently just not working. Um, and, and go talk to people who are already there to make sure that if you do go work there, it's the right move and it's the right company. You're not sat there in a couple of weeks' time scratching your head going, oh God, I wish I'd just slow down a little bit. And I know that's really hard to say if you're in a situation financially where you just got to get working. Um, but if you can just slow down a little bit, I would take those extra steps. And, um, and, and entrepreneurship, again, it's, it might be for people listening to this call. Um, but sometimes I do feel like that graceful swan, right? Going across <laughs> that beautiful, pristine lake yeah. and then underneath my legs like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good. And, and my, my real final question, um, if you could go back in time mm. and give one piece of advice to an 18-year-old Dan Swift, what would it be? Oh. Wow. I mean, I've changed so much. I would say stop taking yourself so seriously. Um, I think at the age of 18, or probably probably more like 22, 23, when I first started into business, um, I, I was just took it way, way, way too seriously. Um, put so much pressure on myself to be that like, like top performer and all that kind of stuff. And when people like surpass me, which is natural, people are always going to have good quarters and whatnot. I took that really kind of personally. So I would look back at myself and go, damn, just calm down, chill out. <laughs> Everything's fine. This is a long journey. You know, we're going to be working for decades. Yeah. So like, take a breath, don't take yourself so seriously and just have some fun as well. You know, we're in sales. If you can't have fun while we're um, selling, then you might be in the wrong career. Quite right. Very good. Dan Swift, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Tom. Thank you. Well, that's it from us, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and big thank you to Dan Swift for, for coming on the show and sharing his story and as well as sharing a few uh, hints and tips that we can all I think benefit from guys if you enjoyed listening to that don't forget to follow us on linkedin subscribe on uh, whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts uh, and feel free to share with your friends uh, we've got lots more exciting content to come next up we have an interview with ceo and founder of napier mr julian dixon so that's definitely one not to miss until next time goodbye Thank you.